Afghanistan, I'm talking about something that's occurring much closer to home. It's a spiritual conflict against an enemy who is much more powerful, much more intelligent, and much more resourceful than we are. Peter describes our enemy, Satan, as a roaring lion that is seeking someone to devour. The Greek term that he uses in 1 Peter 5.8 is katapino, which means literally to swallow up. And it brings to mind a famished lion chasing down his prey to satisfy its own hunger. And this is how Peter describes Satan's attitude toward the believer. That should get our attention. As Paul brings his letter to the Ephesians to its conclusion, he visits the subject of satanic opposition and comforts us in the fact that God, who is infinitely more powerful, more intelligent, and more resourceful than Satan, is on our side. And he's made provision for the believer to be victorious in this intense conflict. The spiritual life is a struggle, but it's a winnable struggle, provided we fight the battle according to God's prescription and not our own. As we'll see in this paragraph that we're going to begin studying tonight, it's going to take us a couple of weeks, the fight that we fight in the spiritual life, in this spiritual battle against the enemy Satan, is a defensive one. And a key phrase, perhaps the operative phrase in this paragraph, is going to be stand firm. Very important phrase. We'll see it's used many times in this paragraph. Stand firm. This is a defensive fight. It's not an offensive fight. By the way, there's nothing here about binding Satan, as is the preaching of some. I'm not really sure what that even means anyway. Biblically, the only time that Satan is bound is at the beginning of the millennium. And the Lord is going to send an angel, not named, but I'm guessing it's Michael because of the role that he typically plays. He's going to send an angel to do that. That's not a human being. Those who promote the binding of Satan by believers do so without any biblical authority whatsoever and are leading people who are foolish enough to follow them right into the mouth of the lion. That is not the kind of fight that we fight against Satan. We do not fight an aggressive, offensive fight. We fight a defensive fight. I know that those who are very familiar with military history and the great battles and the great campaigns of history, know that it's very difficult to win a war from a human perspective fighting defensively. That's one of the things that historians, military historians, have against, say, Robert E. Lee. Brilliant, brilliant general, but he was basically always fighting a defensive war. Well, that was his philosophy, and there, was, there were reasons why he did it. But we can't transfer the, the theories about human wars onto this war. Paul's going to tell us later, this is not a war against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual war. And this spiritual war must be fought, dug in, in a defensive stance. As soon as a believer goes on the offensive against Satan, you're toast. It's going to be a complete wipeout. Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, by encouraging us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The phrase, in the Lord, denotes the sphere from which the strength to defeat Satan comes. Now, we may say, how in the world are we going to defeat this being that is more powerful, more intelligent, and more resourceful than us? 
and not by just a little bit. He's a lot more powerful, a lot more intelligent, a lot more resourceful than we are. How are we possibly to defeat him? We can't. We can't do it, but God can. So the only way we're going to defeat this powerful enemy is if we do it God's way, under God's protective wing, with God's power. So the phrase in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord, denotes the sphere in which we can be strong. It's reminiscent of the Lord's words to, of encouragement to Zerubbabel that are recorded in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If we plunge headlong into this fight alone, without the protection and the empowerment of the Lord, we will lose. Hence, Peter's warning in 1 Peter chapter 5, and Paul's warning here. And the final score won't even be close. It'll be worse than that 100 to nothing pasting that Covenant School laid upon Dallas Academy and girls basketball two years ago. 100 to nothing. To put this in perspective, Dallas Academy was a school, is a school, that has a total of 20 girls in the whole school. And it's a school that's for the learning disabled. And according to those who watched the game, Covenant continued to play aggressively, even though they were leading 59 to nothing at the half. They continued with a pressure defense. And those of you know that, that know basketball, that means you're contesting every pass. They continued with the pressure defense all the way through the second half until they were ahead 100 to nothing. And then they backed off a bit. But the clock was about to run out anyway. To their credit, the administration of Covenant issued an apology the next week for what they themselves turned unsportsmanlike conduct on the part of their coach. Now, the game never should have been played. I know there's a lot of discussion that can take place on that. The game should have never been played in the first place. And I'm not really sure what the coach was trying to teach the girls, but it's that score, 100 to nothing, that I want you to see. That's a complete wipeout. It's a blowout. It's not even close. No contest. And I'm glad that the coach, or the administration rather, apologized on behalf of the team. But my friend, Satan will not issue any post-game apologies to you and to me. And he is not going to let up, even if he's leading 100 to nothing. Satan is a created being. And as such, while he's very powerful, he's much more powerful than we are, he is not omnipotent. Now, that should give us some hope. Covenant beat Dallas Academy 100 to nothing. But I wonder what would have happened if that same girls' school, Covenant, instead of playing Dallas Academy, would have played the University of Texas men's basketball team. And what if that men's basketball team, when they played Covenant High, this girls' basketball team, would have had the same attitude, this go-for-the-throat attitude, just, just do whatever you have to do attitude to just completely annihilate and stomp your opponent into the ground. You can tell I'm not a real big fan of that in high school sports. What if University of Texas men's team had the same attitude about covenant? Do you think the score would have even been 100 to nothing? No, I mean, it would have been as fast as you could possibly score points, and probably somebody's going to get hurt. Well, here's my point. 
to put some perspective on this, we are, in a sense, Dallas Academy. Satan is covenant. And God is the University of Texas men's basketball team. Now, of course, this is all language of accommodation, because if God was a basketball team, he would be part of the Texas A&M basketball team, not the University of Texas basketball team. So it's just an illustration. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite so sure Covenant would, would appreciate me calling them Satan either. I'm not saying they're Satan. I just want to put it in perspective. Here you have God, who is much, much more powerful than Satan. And, and this is not even a real comparison, because as different, as more powerful as the University of Texas men's team, who just beat the number two team in the country this last week, as, as power, much more powerful as they are to this Covenant girls team, God is even infinitely more powerful than that than Satan is. But the point is, in this whole illustration, without God, we're Dallas Academy. In chapter 1 of this letter, Paul prayed that by knowing God intimately, we might understand his mighty power displayed through Christ's resurrection and ascension. He further prayed, all the way back in chapter 1, that we would appropriate that power in our lives. Now Paul has returned to the subject of appropriation of divine power. That's the what in terms of what we should do. What should we do when it comes to the spiritual conflict? Well, what we should do is to be strengthened in the Lord. We should appropriate divine power. Having identified the what, Paul now explains the how that can come about, or how that, that can come about, rather. How do I appropriate divine power? Because it's nice to say, well, we just need to count on God, but how does that actually work out in real life? How does it work out in real life to stay under God's protective wing? How do I do that? Because if you're like me, and you get this metaphor of the, of the lion that's out there ready to devour his prey, you want to stay under the protective wing. I don't want to get out in front of God. I'd like for him to be out in front of me. I would like for that whole thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? I want that to work for me. So how does that happen? In chapter 6, verse 11, the first half, we see the how. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So the how is to put on the full armor of God. The word put on here is the Greek term in duo, which was used by Paul in other places. He uses the term frequently, typically for putting on clothes, either literally or metaphorically. Now, this is an aorist middle imperative. I don't usually give you those things, but this particular time it's important. The aorist tense gives us a sense of urgency with regard to this command to put on the full armor of God. This is not just kind of a walk in the park kind of thing. Maybe you should do it tomorrow, or if, let's do it next year when we get around to it. No, the way this is phrased is Paul wants to get our attention right off the bat and tell us that this is something extremely urgent. If he was preaching, he'd raise his voice now, or he'd move and make sure we got everybody's attention. This is big. Put on, he says, the full armor of God. The middle voice indicates that each of us is responsible for this action. There's a sense of urgency with the aorist tense. The middle voice means each of us is responsible to do this. In other words, God's not going to do it for you. 
We have to do this ourselves. This is the decision that we have to make. God does not force us to utilize his provision for victory. He makes it available. He provides the armor. But we make the choice as to whether or not we're going to put this armor on. The term for armor is this, it's the same one that's used in classical times for the suit of armor of a classical foot soldier. It should be kept in mind that as Paul is writing these words, he's under house arrest in Rome. And he's under the guard of Roman soldiers. It's very reasonable to assume that Paul is taking his metaphor here from the situation that he's in at the particular time. He's under house arrest at the time that he writes this. So we see the what. We're to put on the full armor of God. We see how am I going to, what is to be strong in the Lord. How we're to put on the full armor of God. And now why? Why do we put on the full armor of God? In order that we may be able to stand or to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This word stand firm in verse 11 is stenai, S-T-E-N-A-I. It is a derivative of a very, very important word in classical Greek, histemi, which is used in a variety of ways. But here it means to stand, to stand firm, or to offer resistance. So various translations translate it stand up against. Or stand against, or stand firm against. This means to hold one's position, or to dig in. And it indicates a defensive position, not an offensive one. It's like someone has has dug a trench, and they've got their back foot in it. And they're not going backwards, but they're not going to go forward either. They're going to protect their six feet of ground. They're not going anywhere. They're going to stay right under God's protective wings. Now, the opposition against which we stand is the devil himself, along with his schemes, his strategies, his methods, and procedures that are designed for our defeat. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil has a plan. The devil doesn't just wake up one day and say, I wonder what I'm going to do today in terms of thwarting God and destroying his people. Oh, no, he's got a plan. Intelligent people have a plan. And then they work their plan. And that's exactly what Satan's going to do. That's part of this idea of a scheme. He's got a strategy. He has methods. And he has procedures that are all designed to defeat you and to defeat me. Now, think about this again. I want you to make sure you've got it. The one who's doing this is more powerful, he's more intelligent, and he's more resourceful than we are when we're on our own. If we go up against him, it's going to be Covenant versus Dallas Academy all over again, or even worse. So this is not just some sort of random activity on Satan's part. The term that is used here is the term devil. The devil means literally slanderer or accuser, and that's what Satan himself does. Jesus tells us that Satan or the devil is the father of lies, and there's no truth in him. I find that interesting. There's no truth in him. 
for most people, we would like to say, well, there's a lot of truth in him and a little bit of lie. In fact, a lot of deceivers will tell some truth and then mix a little lie in, and the whole thing becomes fair. Like dropping a drop of botulism into a glass of extremely pure water. Who would want to drink it? It's still poisonous. But Jesus said that there wasn't any truth in Satan at all. So even when he tells the truth in a limited way, that's against his nature. This is our enemy. John reports that Satan was a sinner from the beginning. That's how John kind of dates the beginning of time with the fall of Satan. So I can't stress enough tonight that Satan is an extremely intelligent being, extremely powerful being, although he's not omniscient and he's not omnipotent. But he's extremely intelligent and he's extremely powerful and he is not to be taken lightly. I pity some of these poor folks that follow their silly pastor's advice and go charging out doing whatever they do to try to bind Satan. I know they're well-meaning, but sometimes well-meaning can get you in a lot of trouble if it's not attached to biblical truth. And they're just leading their people to the slaughter. There's nothing biblical whatsoever about it. Are you getting the point we're fighting a defensive battle? We can't defeat Satan on our own, and that's the bad news. But the good news is, with God on our side, if we stay under his protective wing... We can't lose. When it's all said and done, it's not going to be close one way or the other. We're either going to be on the winning side and we're going to win by a lot, or we're going to be on the losing side and we're going to get destroyed. One other piece of hopefully positive news, though, if you plan on fighting Satan on your own and get destroyed, one thing you do not have to be concerned about is losing your salvation. That's not part of the deal. Satan is out to destroy you here and now. The spiritual life that you have now or the one that you won't have. When I say destroyed, I am not talking about losing your salvation. Paul makes that very, 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 very abundantly clear in the scriptures. In many places, not just Paul, but other scriptural writers. Our Lord himself did that. In fact, the scriptures tell us that our security is made secure. Our eternal life is made secure by the power of God the Father, by the power of God the Son. God the Son has us in his grip and will not let us go. God the Father has us in his grip and will not let us go. We studied already in Paul's letter to the Ephesians earlier. The Holy Spirit has us sealed up to the day of redemption. Satan can't get in there. The Apostle Paul ended perhaps one of the greatest chapters in all of the Word of God, although all of the Word of God is the Word of God, so it's all great. But he said, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we've studied in Ephesians and in Romans that phrase, in Christ Jesus, is a technical Pauline phrase for someone who's in the body of Christ, someone who is saved. So when we speak about losing this spiritual fight, we're not speaking about losing our salvation. But we are speaking of, instead of living a life that is God-fulfilling, a life that is God-pleasing, rather, and a life that is fulfilling with regard to ourselves, we live a life that is wasted. And who wants that? The Hindus think you have quite a few different chances. Different opportunities. You mess this one up, 
and you get to have another one. And you mess that one up, and you get to have another one after that. Have you ever talked to someone who has that particular philosophy? It's not just the Hindus. Other people that follow Eastern philosophies do. They often think that in the next life, they're going to come back maybe as a prince or a princess. And the one after that, they may come back as a king. And the one after that, they'll come back as a spiritual person. And then ultimately and finally, they don't need to come back anymore, and they've kind of reached the highest of the peaks. I had a friend that used to hold that. Maybe he still does. I don't know. I said, well, that may be not fine for you, but I only get one. I'm getting one shot at this. And actually, you are too. You're just getting one shot. And then he told me he thought I was a very young soul. And that's why that's, I thought that way. If I was an older, more mature soul, if I had been around a much time, then I would get this reincarnation thing. <laughs> and I said, no, I was born on August 6, 1956. That's the first time, and that's the only time I'm going to be born into this life. I was born again about seven years later. So you only get one shot at it. Why do we want to waste it? Why do we want to waste even one minute of any day, not only trying to tackle Satan on our own, but walking out of fellowship with God? And that's going to be what a lot of this is. If we stay in fellowship with God, these things are all going to work out. So we can't defeat Satan on our own, but with God on our side, if we stay under his protective wing, we cannot lose. Now look at verse 12, and Paul's going to set the standard for who the opposition is. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I was once at a party, and a, fa a fascinating question came up. Is the spiritual life really a struggle for people who are walking in fellowship with God? And some people said, well, no, if you're walking in fellowship with God, there is no struggle in life. And I thought about that for a minute, and I said, no. I don't think that's the way Paul puts it. Paul says that the thing is a struggle for everybody. We're all in the fight. The only tension is, are we going to win it or are we not going to win it? No, you can't help it. If you're in this world at this time in Satan's fallen world, you're involved in a struggle whether you like it or not. We cannot pretend that it doesn't exist. We can't be like parts of Europe before World War II and pretend that, that Hitler wasn't a threat. He was real. There were people who said, no, no, it's a real threat. And others will say, well, no, it's, it wasn't that big of a deal. He's not, it's, he doesn't really have any designs upon us at all. This is a problem, and we have to deal with it. Verse 12 tells us who the problem is with. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If it was, then it would be easy enough to solve and win this battle. If it was against flesh and blood, what would we do? Well, we would build a better weapon, we'd learn to shoot straighter, we'd get to the gym and we'd exercise so our muscles were stronger, we'd take a class in self-defense you know, so, so we could fight better. If it was against flesh and blood, it would be so much easier. We're used to that kind of fight as cultures and people. But Paul said, that's not the kind of fight that we're in. In contrast to a physical struggle, Paul says our struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I want you to notice that all these are in the plural. In the beginning, he says that we should stand firm against the schemes of the devil, singular. Now he brings some other beings into this, doesn't he? Because it's now plural. Rulers, powers world forces and spiritual forces. 
since flesh and blood have been ruled out as the enemy here, when Paul talks about rulers and powers, he can't be talking about human rulers or human powers. He's not talking about kings or dictators or terrorists or whoever it may be because they're human beings. But he may very well be talking about the power behind those people. World forces of spiritual darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. All those are in the plural. It's Satan's plan. It's Satan's scheme. These are his methods, his strategy, his procedures. But let's don't get the idea that Satan is omni-anything, except for perhaps omni-evil. I don't know if that's a real word or not. That's about the only omni-thing that he is. Omni-depraved, maybe. Satan is not omnipresent, either. We've already said tonight he's, omnot- he's intelligent, but he's not omniscient. He's powerful, but he's not omnipotent. And he has got this incredible system, but he's not omnipresent. I don't know how many people can really say that Satan himself has tempted them. I know what people mean, and I certainly agree to some extent when they say, well, Satan is after me. What they probably mean is, Satan, with regard to his system and his procedures and his methods and his strategy, he's after me. But Satan himself, while powerful, while intelligent, can only be at one place at one time. So what about these plurals here? Who could that possibly be? Well, it seems clear, since he can't be in more than one place at one time, and these are plural, and that Satan's going after every believer everywhere, that he utilizes an army of demons. Demons being the other angels that fell and rebelled against God like Satan did. That makes sense. Satan's not doing this all by himself. But it also can make sure that we go back to this urgency about putting on the full armor of God. We can't just determine that since Satan is not omnipresent, that we can take a break. He's not omnipresent. But it would appear as though Satan has assigned at least a member or two of his army of demons, of his host, to each, perhaps each local church, Bible college, seminary. I'm not nearly as smart as Satan, but I can figure out that if I was going to go after the Christian community, I would certainly have a demon or two or ten hovering around Dallas Theological Seminary, both Dallas campus and Houston campus. I'd have some demonic activity hanging around the College of Biblical Studies. I'd have, I'd have some of my people around Houston Baptist University, not people, but demons. I'd certainly have some of my demons that had as their assigned task to take down any particular pastor that they could take down that was actually teaching the Word of God. Now, I would leave alone the ones that are saying, you go out and bind Satan. Why bother them? They're doing his work for him already. Satan typically is going to go after those who are effective. Now, you want to be an effective Christian? I want you to be that. God wants you to be that. You want to be that. Okay. You're also in the fight. And the more effective you are for Christ the more saints going to come after you. It was a number of years ago, I can't remember exactly how long, Paul and I were in a class with Dr. John Walbert. 
one of the few times he had taught a class called The Theology of Lewis Ferry Schaefer. And there was one particular class that I'll never forget. That was a class that we kind of got him off subject. We always liked to get him off subject. We learned a whole lot more when he just would start talking. But he said, gentlemen, I'm going to tell you something. He was talking about this fight, this conflict, this battle of the heavenlies that's going on constantly all around us. And he said, Satan is an intelligent being. And he's going to do everything he can to take you down. So he said, you never, you never should leave your house in the morning without devoting that day to prayer. And then he said something that I thought was the result of years of wisdom. And that was, if Satan can't get a hold of you that day, Perhaps you are all prayed up. Perhaps you're staying under God's protective wings. You know the next person he's going to go after? He's going to go after your wife or your son or your daughter or your mother or your father or your friend or your next door neighbor, somebody that's close to you. And he's going to keep at it until he gets a hold of somebody. So he also told us we should never leave our homes in the morning without also praying for a hedge of protection our entire family. Now, ultimately, at the end of the day, our families make their own choices, whether they stay under God's protective wing or not, but we could sure pray for a hedge of protection. I do it for our church all the time, because I certainly don't want to be proud or arrogant that if I get to heaven and I find out we didn't have at least one demon assigned to Pine Valley Bible <laughs> Church, I'd be a little disappointed. So all these are in the plural. That means these are demons that take part in Satan's plan. He's the boss. He's the general. But he has minions that are out there, millions of minions, perhaps, that are out there that mean to do us harm. I don't think they act independently. I think they do act under the orders of their leader. And how that all works out, I don't know. Do they have meetings? Do they take vacations and have retreats? I'm not sure. But he gets his point across to him. Apparently, Satan has somehow concluded that if he can destroy the lives of believers, then somehow, in some way, he might be vindicated in his rebellion against God. Otherwise, I can't think of any other reason why he goes after believers the way he does. Now, there may be one. It would come kind of like this. If he can get other created beings, especially those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, to rebel against him, then maybe his own rebellion wouldn't have been so offensive to God. Perhaps this is his reasoning. I don't know. I wouldn't die for that view. I wouldn't write a book about it. We're never told. But some speculate as to that, and they may be right. In other words, if Satan could get a whole bunch of people to fall with him like he did those angels, then maybe he could say, just maybe he could say, look, God, nobody likes you. We're, we're all against you. It's not just me. Maybe it's you. But God's not going to fall for that. That's not going to work. Satan will end up in the lake of fire no matter how many failed spiritual lives he holds up as evidence to his own vindication. The issue for us is, are we going to be victorious, or are we going to be a casualty in the conflict? Again, we'll never lose our salvation. That's not an issue. That's secure. But we may very well be injured spiritually. 
if we refuse God's provision for protection. The choice is ours to make. The spiritual life is a struggle, but it's a winnable struggle. Provided we fight the battle according to God's prescription.